Open up to the book of James. We're going to begin this morning by reading James chapter 1, verse 1. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes, to the 12 tribes in the dispersion, greetings. Let's pray. Lord, we come to you this morning now asking for your blessing, especially on the preaching of your word, that you would take the message of James and that you would pierce our hearts with it, that you would remind us of your holiness, of your grace, and Holy Spirit, that you would open up our minds to understand, that you would soften our hearts in preparation for this short yet direct and very powerful letter to your people. In your name we pray, amen. In the book of Acts chapter 2, a new people of God were formed by faith in the gospel message proclaimed by Jesus' apostles. In Acts chapter 2, the church was born. Of course, all of this took place in the city of Jerusalem, when Jews from all over the Roman Empire were present for the celebration of Pentecost. And for a while, it would seem, many, many of these pilgrims remained in the city to participate in the life of this new movement, as the early chapters of Acts describe it. And you can go back to the early chapters of Acts and you can read about the life of the church, how they were gathering together, how they were listening to the apostles' teaching, how they were sharing all things that they owned with those who were in need, how they were singing praises in the temple. It would seem that because of this new life, this new movement, that many of these pilgrims who would have normally just come to the city of Jerusalem to celebrate Pentecost actually remained and stayed in the city for a while. The early church then was made up of Jewish believers. And eventually many of these first believers who had hung out in Jerusalem for an extra amount of time eventually went back home to their home regions outside of Palestine. Very probably, they were driven by either economic needs or persecution, or both. Whatever the motivation, whatever drove them, they took the gospel with them. They took the Christian faith with them. And as a result, fledgling Christian communities, new churches really, were formed in various locations throughout the Roman Empire, just outside of Palestine, places where a good number of Jews already lived. And it's important to understand that these early Jewish Christians did not see themselves as a different religion. They didn't see themselves as starting something new and distinct from Judaism, from the Jewish faith. They saw themselves as true Israel, or maybe we could say core Israel. And they uh, saw themselves then as the Israelites who were receiving the fulfillment of God's promises. 
One of the the big themes in the New Testament is explaining how the Christian faith emerged out of Judaism, how it became something distinct. But that was really because the Jewish leadership and the Jews as a nation rejected the Christian faith, not because the Christians sought to be something else. At the center then of the church's life, at the center of the church's growth, were its leaders, the apostles. The apostles laid the foundations for the Christian faith just as Jesus had commissioned them to do. That's one of the reasons Jesus had called the disciples to himself, the 12, was to equip them and train them, prepare them for this job, for this mission. And the most influential of that number of apostles were James, Peter, and John. In Galatians 2, verse 9, the apostle Paul actually identifies James, Cephas, who is Peter, it's another name for Peter, and John as pillars of the church, even placing James at the head of this list. This and other accounts in the New Testament show us that James was a prominent leader in the early decades of the church, and without a doubt, the prominent leader of the church in Jerusalem. It's interesting that certain traditions of Christianity will attach that role to Peter. We know that the Roman Catholic Church which for a long time was the only Christian church, but that the Catholic church builds itself on the the authority of the apostle Peter and its passing on of that authority to a pope, generation by generation. But in in the text of the scriptures, it is James who speaks for the apostolic leadership It's James who writes. It's James who represents the views of the leadership. While numbered among the apostles, though, you might say that James was the first local church pastor. Because while the other apostles are moving and going out, James remains in Jerusalem. That is his seat of ministry. Now, let's look at the text again, James chapter 1, verse 1, and let's talk about our author a little bit. Who is this James? Well, there are a lot of men in the New Testament named James. It was a common name. But the only James that fits here is James, the son of Joseph and Mary, and therefore Jesus' half-brother. According to John chapter 7, James is included with the rest of Jesus' brothers as not believing in him, thinking that he had gone off the rails. In Mark chapter 3, James joins with the rest of Jesus' family in trying to prevent him from his ministry because they all think Jesus has gone mad. It wasn't until after Jesus' death and resurrection that James believed. We're told in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 7, that the resurrected Jesus even appears personally to James. 
It may be at that time that James believes was actually converted. It is this James who writes this letter from Jerusalem to the scattered Jewish believing communities who are living outside the land and separated, if you will, from headquarters. They are separated from headquarters in Jerusalem. Which is why James here addresses them as the 12 tribes in the dispersion. The dispersion was a technical word used to identify national Israelites who were scattered and dispersed throughout the world. This is actually what God had said he would do to the nation of Israel throughout the Old Testament scriptures as part of the consequences for breaking the covenant. I will scatter you throughout the nations. With that also came a promise, I will regather you. This is the dispersion then. James takes this identification, which was really for all Jewish people who were living dispersed or scattered throughout the world, but James takes this identification and he applies it to these scattered Jewish Christian church communities. Because they are true Israel or core Israel, and having received the promises of the Old Testament, having received their Messiah, being converted, they receive this title from James. From what we can gather in the letter, these believers are beset with trials and hardships. It is very likely that many of them were forced into this dispersion by the persecution that broke out in Acts chapter 8, verse 1. You remember that Stephen was stoned? Well, that stoning of Stephen let loose a persecution on the believers in Jerusalem, and many of them scattered. In fact, we have a very, a very clear reference to this in Acts chapter 11, verse 19. Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. So the Jewish people, this is, this is a great illustration of how these Jewish believers saw themselves as true Israel. They were not out yet sharing the gospel with Gentiles. They saw what we know as the Christian faith, the gospel, as first and foremost to their fellow Jews, being forced them by persecution to scatter and to go into these places outside of the land of Palestine to escape persecution. They took the gospel with them and in their minds were sharing it with fellow Jews. Some of them likely lost their homes their livelihoods. The letter begins with rejoicing because of trials. Not in spite of trials, but because of trials. The letter of James ends with an exhortation to endure suffering patiently. Patiently endure. These believers were especially economically vulnerable. And in the letter of James, we find over and over again references to wealth and poverty. 
the rich and the poor. The vulnerable who are oppressed by those who are in places of power and security. One portion of the letter even confronts partiality and the example that James uses to confront this favoritism is an example of wealth, discriminating against the poor. He also includes a scathing warning to the rich who oppress those who are financially and economically dependent upon them. We also find that these scattered Jews prize wisdom. They prize wisdom. Throughout the book, James talks about wisdom. Now, this isn't Greek wisdom like we think of the wisdom of Socrates and Aristotle and Greek philosophers. This is a Jewish wisdom. It's the wisdom of the Old Testament scriptures as well as other well-known Jewish writings of their day. Having wisdom seems to be, in their minds, the primary qualification for maturity, for leadership, and that makes sense because these new Christian Jewish, largely Jewish at least, communities scattered out are forming themselves or are gathering new leadership. They're selecting new leaders. James doesn't condemn the prizing of wisdom, but he does define it. He does clarify it. So all of these things stand out in the letter as giving us kind of a picture of the, uh, the reader's situation, their circumstances. James then is a letter that was meant to be circulated among these communities of Jewish believers. Now, let me give you four, four keys to understanding James, all right, as we get into this study. Four keys to understanding the book. Of all of the New Testament gospels and letters and acts, I believe that James was written very early. That's the first. James writes early. In fact, I believe James writes first. I believe that when you open up your Bibles and you look at the letter of James, you are looking at the earliest Christian document in existence. The Gospels, of course, record events long before James, but they weren't written till another decade, probably, or so after James. I believe that James is writing about the mid-40s A.D. This explains why there is no discussion about Jewish and Gentile relationships within the church. Notice that if you've ever read James. He doesn't talk at all about Gentiles and Jews. It's because though there were some Gentiles who were converted, we know that from Acts chapter 10, right? Cornelius. Peter goes into Cornelius' house, preaches the gospel. Gentiles are converted. It's a big step. It's another wall that the gospel breaks down. But by and large, these believers, these church communities are Jewish, and there aren't very many, if any, Gentiles in them. 
This is actually written before the Gentile mission that was launched from the city of Antioch by Paul and Barnabas. It's possibly why James doesn't at all discuss any organization or structure within the church. In chapter 5, he mentions elders, the elders of the church. And in chapter 2, he talks about the, the setting of gathering for worship. Interestingly, it's in a synagogue. These early church communities were meeting in synagogues. Probably on Sunday mornings, not meeting with the Jews on Saturdays, which was the Sabbath. It's probably also why James refers to the law frequently. But James never refers to the law in a negative sense. He never contrasts the law with grace. He sees the law as something helpful for believers. And he speaks and writes to Christians who know the law well. It's why when you read James, James reads like the Old Testament scriptures more than any other New Testament book. It's because James is writing early, even writing first. This will help clarify as we get into the book some of the things that are controversial that James says. Well, secondly, James writes with authority. James writes with authority. We've already talked about how James is numbered among the apostles and as a leader, but James himself, when you look at James chapter 1, verse 1, identifies himself as a servant of God of the Lord and of the Lord Jesus Christ. By calling himself a servant or really a slave, James is not just being humble. He's not just highlighting that he belongs to Christ. Those things are true. But servant here is a title, and it means something like in the service of God as his representative. You could even give it a capital S if you want, when James says a servant. By taking this title, James is saying that his service to God is to fulfill the responsibility to instruct them on God's behalf. With Christ's authority. So James writes to them with authority, claiming to be a servant of God. By the way, many of the Old Testament saints were called God's servant, Moses being one. There were also many prophecies about the servant, capital S. Jesus was that servant promised, especially in the book of Isaiah. So there is precedent for this title. James writes with authority. He also writes with authority because his letter is saturated with Jesus' teachings. It's saturated with Jesus' teachings. James reflects Jesus' teachings more than any other New Testament author. You get the feeling when you read, when you read James that James must have been there a lot of the time. And even if he was Jesus' younger brother and thinking his older brother was mad, off the rails, 
James probably heard him say what he say what he said, what he taught many, many times. Most of them are indirect. That is, they're not direct quotes of what Jesus says, but there are some 26 connections at least that can be made between James and Jesus' teaching, including asking in prayer and receiving, anger, the kingdom and the poor, the greatest commandment to love, being peacemakers, the exaltation of the humble, judging others, taking oaths. That's just to name a few of them. James is so saturated with Jesus' teaching that it simply constantly leaks out. It emerges as he writes. So James writes with authority. And he writes with authority not only to those early believing communities, but he writes with authority to us. Thirdly, James writes to correct. He writes to correct. This is James' purpose. It is, frankly, confrontational. The letter of James has a higher percentage of imperatives, commands, than any other writer or book in the New Testament. For such a short book, again, I'll use the word saturation, it is saturated with commands. I think this is part of what gives it its appeal to popular, makes it popular among believers. It's very direct, it's very simple, and it is filled with commands. It is what gives the letter a very practical feel to it. James is full of commands. It makes it very practical, but it also gives it its confrontational tone. And the reason is that James is calling us to account. He's calling us to account by confronting what I will call spiritual fracture or spiritual duplicity. That is that there are fractures in the human heart. The spiritually fractured person, according to James asks God for wisdom, but doesn't believe God will keep his promise to provide it. James calls this doubt. Doubt for James is not, I'm just not sure. My faith is weak. Doubt for James is asking God for wisdom and then sitting in judgment on God and saying, God will not be fair. God will not give me wisdom. The spiritually fractured person sees trials, difficulties, hardships as temptations that God sends to cause them to stumble. That God actually is using to cause them to sin and then blames God for it. The spiritually fractured person hears the word but neglects to do it. The spiritually fractured person claims to fulfill the law of love, but discriminates against people, certain people, 
The spiritually fractured person claims to have faith but has no works. And when challenged with not having any works that are the fruit of faith, simply points to their faith and says, but I have faith. The spiritually fractured person praises God, blesses God, teaches about God, but with the same mouth curses people who are made in God's image. The spiritually fractured person considers himself wise, but actually displays a wisdom from hell. The spiritually fractured person claims friendship with God, but also with the world. On two occasions, James calls this person double-minded. The word is literally double-souled, S-O-U-L, two-souled. This is a person who is spiritually or morally fractured. They say one thing but do another. It may or may not even be intentional. They may or may not even be aware of it. This spiritual fracture, this spiritual duplicity is the theme of the letter. It is why James writes. James writes to us then like an Old Testament prophet. When you read James, you're reading a New Testament work that is as close to the minor prophets, especially as you can get in the New Testament. And he is calling us to live Christian lives that are whole, that are undivided, without fracture, without duplicity, without hypocrisy. James writes to correct us. And I'm grateful he does. Fourthly, James writes with a structured argument. James writes with a structured argument. If you've ever read James, and many of you have, most of you have probably done Bible studies in James, you probably have felt like James reads kind of like a rambling It feels like James rambles, like he just kind of jumps from one topic to the next. You're not alone. In fact, some scholars say that James is doing exactly that, that James is just stitching together a variety of subjects that he wants to address into a written sermon of sorts, that these are just a bunch of sermon points, and James just kind of links them together. Stitches them together. But I say without a doubt that James writes with a structure. And it is all organized around this confrontation of spiritual duplicity, spiritual fracture. It's just that James doesn't write in a line. Now, here at Crossway, just a few months ago, we spent a year plus a little bit in the book of Romans. And you can see, for just as comparison, if you read Romans, Romans has a a very linear outline. You can go point one, point one, sub point A, and so on. James doesn't do that. That's part of the reason 
we have trouble reading James and understanding the argument. James writes almost in circles at points. It's very Hebrew. So James isn't just writing in a line. He is making a point, and then he will make the point with a different illustration by addressing a different issue. But he's making the same point. James does write with structure, though. So just to give you a quick survey of the flow of thought, James opens his letter by calling us to endure trials of all kinds with joy because our faith is being matured. It is being made whole. How one views and responds to trials reveals either the duplicity, the fracture, or the sincerity of his or her faith, since the duplicitous person views trials as temptation from God. In his most explicit theological statement, and James, by the way, one of the observations that's made about this letter often is that James doesn't get into theology especially when it comes to the person of Christ. He assumes a certain theology is already in place, though, and we'll see that. But his most explicit theological statement in chapter 1, verses 16 through 18, presents God as one, without the slightest blemish of duplicity in his character. James then launches into four arguments Parallel arguments that expose the nature, the tragedy, and the absurdity of fractured living. Hearing the word, but not obeying it, not doing it. Keeping the law, but discriminating against people. Claiming to have faith, but having no works. Blessing God while cursing people. The argument then climbs, becomes more intense, with two sets of questions. We call them rhetorical questions. The first is found in chapter 3, verse 13. Who is wise and understanding among you? The second then is found in chapter 4, verse 1. What causes quarrels and what causes fights? Among you. First, then, under the first question, James asserts that there are two wisdoms. There are two kinds of hearers. There are two kinds of worshipers. There are two kinds of faith. There are two kinds of tongues or speaking, ways of speaking. And now there are two kinds of wisdom. Two ways to see life, two ways to live life. One is earthly in its origins, really demonic. The other is heavenly. It's from heaven. Secondly, then, he exposes the source of anger and strife as unmet desires. Such living is worldly and is actually enmity against God. And the letter's argument climaxes with a passionate call to repentance. That is in chapter 4, beginning in verse 4. 
and going through verse 10. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says, he yearns jealously over the spirit that, has, that he has made to dwell in us, but he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. This is the center or the high peak of the letter. It is this call to radical, life-changing repentance. And I will say this again, but I will tell you now, James at that, at that point in the letter is not concerned whether you are a Christian or not. He is saying that if you are not a Christian, this is the answer. Submit yourself to God, resist the devil and he will flee from you, draw near to him and he will draw near to you. And he's saying to you, if you're a Christian, This is the answer to the spiritual duplicity in your life. Submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. You see, the cure is the same. Given this need for humility, then, James warns the self-sufficient. He goes on, then, to warn the wealthy And he calls for a steadfastness in suffering. And lastly, at the end of the letter, he exhorts us to pray. He exhorts us to deal with sin and, in the end, to pursue others who wander from the faith. That is the letter of James. James is significant for us. As you can see, he is is not offered us some wandering collection of sermon points. James is fiercely exposing and challenging the duplicity in our hearts. And can I, can I let you in on a little secret? I've alluded to it already. And that is both you and I have fractures. We have fractures. I'm not talking about emotional fractures. I'm not talking about being mentally fractured. I'm talking about spiritual fracture. We are more fractured than we know or would like to admit. But I will tell you this. The book of James will change your life if you will give your heart to it and hear its message. Especially... In a Christian culture, which I think, from my estimation over the last couple of decades, has stressed freedom so much that we have forgotten what it means to resist worldliness, 
in the church. James will change our lives. Let's pray. Lord, we come to you now and and ask that you would continue to prepare our hearts for this study. Lord, that you would go with us from this place attentive to where our lives need to change. It is only in your word, by the conviction of your spirit, that we can see our own hearts as they really are. Would you give us the grace, even now, to begin to deal with sin, with attitudes in our hearts that displease you and are inconsistent with the work of the gospel in our lives. We know that that you will complete what you have begun. And so, Lord, we come with joy now and and, uh, come to your table to remember, Lord Jesus, your death, and that it is only by your sacrifice that our hearts can be changed, that we can know redemption, that we can know true freedom from sin and wholeness as your people. In your name we ask and proclaim these things. Amen.